0: Welcome to the ex Field Resource Podcast with Reed Styles. After working for five years as a reservoir engineer for a large exploration and production company, I transitioned my career first to a financial tech startup and then on to an energy investment company. I'm fascinated by people that took their experience in the oil and gas industry and successfully applied their specialties to other careers and industries. I'm interviewing ex-oilfield professionals with the intention of sharing their stories to inspire others to explore new careers today I'm speaking with Jeremy Jensen. He's super active on LinkedIn. You've probably seen him before. His content is all over the place. He's the CEO of a recruiting firm that used to focus on oil and gas for the last seven years and has now shifted their focus to recruiting in other sectors. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. Hey, thanks for having me, Reed. Tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you're from, where do you live now? What are your hobbies?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I own a, a 20-person recruiting firm here in Houston, um, you know, as you mentioned, we used to focus primarily in the oil and gas vertical and, you know, ever since, uh, oil went negative, uh, you know, that's been uh, somewhat, uh, negatively impacting our business. Right. And so we've had a diversify and recruiting in other verticals like technology, legal services, wealth management, and those industries. So, yep. So I'm, I live in Houston, but I've got three little kids. Uh, they live with their mom and Katie. Yeah. Just having a lot of fun, man.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I I'm so excited to get in this conversation because you've been down the rabbit hole and you really have a lot of experience with oil and gas so you can relate to a lot of people, but then you're also placing people in new industries so you can understand the transition and kind of what the hurdles are. Absolutely. Let's just dive into your past a little bit and your credentials. How did you get into the entrepreneurial space? What what was your education? What brought you here?
1: Yeah, it's funny. You know, I was the kid that that, you know, grew up in school making straight A's, really didn't have to study very hard. I've got a a really funny story that I've never made less than a 100 in any math test or any assignment in my life. And so mathematics has always come very, very easily to me. You know, went to college, didn't have the guts to leave Houston. I was raised by a single mom. Uh, So I did go to U of H and pursued a bachelor's degree in mathematics. And uh, when I was 83 credit hours into completing my bachelor's degree, uh, I found a sales job working for a company called GoDish.com. We sold uh, DirecTV and Dish Network. And as a 21-year-old with, uh, I want to say, a 3.63 GPA at U of H, uh, I didn't go back for another semester. I just doubled down, went into sales, and as a 21-year-old, I made $108,000 slanging DirecTV and Dish Network on a phone, and, uh, and never looked back, man, just chose sales as my career. Um, and I started my first company, which was a lead generation firm, when I was 25 years old. And uh, I was engaged to a summa cum laude uh, chemical engineer from Georgia Tech at the time, who was a process engineer. You know, here we are 10 years later, right? And I probably make 10 times as much as her. But, you know, that was my path, right? I wanted to choose the path of entrepreneurship, and to actually get paid on what I produced as opposed to just my time and grade and, and, and the degree behind my name, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And I just released a podcast kind of talking about my tech journey where I was an entrepreneur, but I was the technical lead for an entrepreneurial venture. So I definitely am very curious to see how you not only took sales that you're obviously great at, but also the kind of business management side. So. Let's, let's dive into some LinkedIn stuff. I mean, you're incredibly active on LinkedIn. You have a big following. Like, when did you get started in LinkedIn? And how did you know this? Did you know this was going to kind of evolve into a major part of your brand?
1: No, I mean, it was not something that I even remotely thought would happen 10 years after creating the account back in 2009, right? Um, you know, that was whenever I got on LinkedIn, I worked for an HR consulting company, um, doing inside sales and and, and um, use LinkedIn to prospect a little bit, right? But, you know, I was taught by my VP of sales that the money is made on the phone, stop playing on the internet, right? And so uh, it, it's funny how I carry a lot of those same strategies and methodologies to even our business today in the digital age, right? But um, so you know, had the LinkedIn when I uh, started the lead generation company back in, Uh, 2010 um, that's whenever I started to leverage LinkedIn as a lead generation platform. And and it was primarily to develop leads for my clients, whether they were selling products or services. And uh, I really started to kind of uncover some, some, some pro tips, right? Some tricks that would allow me to exploit the data uh, and lever that in order to monetize for my clients efforts. And so um, you know, today I've got 40,000 LinkedIn followers Um, you know, I think I would have more, but I don't approve everybody. And I, uh, I want it to be right. People that, um, are in my space that can have a vested interest in the content that I share. Obviously I want to be connected to decision makers and, and influencers inside of organizations that I could potentially do business with. And so I'm pretty picky on who I let in my network, but obviously because I have People that enjoy engaging on the content with likes and comments and shares, uh, I get a lot of views, and uh, I really enjoy showing up to an event and uh, and people say, "Hey, look, it's the goat," uh, and so that's that's a little bit of a fun that we have with the, with the LinkedIn persona. I've got a little goat next to my name, uh, the emoji, and, uh, and and we've published videos and content circled around hire the goat to find your unicorn. And so, for those of you who don't know what the GOAT means, uh, it's it's an acronym for uh, Greatest of All Time, which we
0: all know is Tom Brady, right in the NFL, undisputed, <laughs> undisputed at this point, yeah. <laughs> the most rings. Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. Obviously, LinkedIn's super powerful. Everyone's got a LinkedIn now. If you're in a full time gig, or if you're wanting to have a brand. Where do you see others fall short when they're just getting going in LinkedIn? And how could they quickly improve to kind of, you know, get going? Say they've kind of been out of the loop. Maybe they have 500 followers. Kind of how would you say, let's kind of get back into it? Where have you seen people succeed?
1: Yeah, so the biggest mistake that I think people have is they uh, go through the feed. Maybe they like an occasional post, but they don't comment. And I think the biggest opportunity for individuals in order to get their name out there is to not necessarily direct message and spam potential hiring managers, but engage on content, right? And when they see the face and when they see the name and they develop a familiarity with that persona, it is gonna motivate them if the little headline caption is captivating enough, it's gonna motivate them to click on your profile to learn more, right? And so I think the biggest opportunity for people that may be passively looking for a new job is start commenting on everything.
0: Yeah. It doesn't cost any money either. And I mean, assuming you're not saying something offensive or over the top, I mean, people usually just give you a like and read your comments. So that's exactly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the funny thing is, is if, uh, if, if let's say Reed likes a comment on my post, uh, obviously the people who follow me are going to see that. Uh, But more importantly, the people that follow both of us, LinkedIn's algorithm forces that content to be right at the top of the page because in their mind, it's, hey, there's multiple people in this person's network that are communicating on this.
0: Yeah, it's like a web. That's really cool. That's great advice. It's really practical.
1: I'll give another tip. And this is is feedback that I give people all the time, and and it's kind of mind-blowing on how simple it is. Let's say you're unemployed, right? And so you've got an end date. your most recent job right so it says completions engineer southwestern energy end date february 2020. well most recruiters whenever they're looking for candidates they're only looking for current title and because that's not your current title you're not going to return in their results and so when you're unemployed and you're looking for a new opportunity what I would encourage you guys to do is still put your desired job's title, so it may say "completions engineer slash petroleum engineer," right? And then the current company could be seeking job opportunity. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Way, if
1: I query it; you come up in my
0: results. I've seen a lot of people do that, and I wondered—I knew there was a, a deliberate reason they were doing it. And that makes perfect sense now. Yeah, the seeking opportunities. So it's for the search algorithm. Very good. It's
1: for the search results. Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's really smart. And one thing that happened for me in the past is I had a different job at a tech company. So I had a different title. So then when I wanted to get back into something more petrotechnical, I had this weird title from the past that didn't necessarily reflect my job. So then I started to change a lot of that. My active role, I kind of changed the job title to fit what I was looking for. So that makes sense that that why you would do that. Yeah, absolutely, and, and you know, the thing,
1: the fact of the matter is, is anybody who knows you, they know your technical expertise, they know your work ethic, right? They know your reliability, uh, your humility, your, they don't need to see job titles. But 99% of the time, you know, you're, you're landing in the inbox of a 40K HR generalist that's funneling through a stack of 500 resumes. And so you have to make it really, really easy for them to put you in the yes stack and not the no
0: stack. I love where we're going with the LinkedIn. I th- Let's kind of move into the oil and gas industry as a whole, because I think that you have such a deep experience recruiting for it in the past five years. What were some of the jobs that were really lucrative for your firm over the past five or 10 years?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're our boutique firm, right? Well, like I said, we, we only have 21 employees today. And at our height, I think we had 28 um, so we're not going to be a big firm like a NES Global or an AirSwift or, you know, a big organization like that that spe- specifically does oil field staffing. But we tried to shy away from recruiting for the operators. And uh, really the reason was is there wasn't a massive sense of urgency, right? I mean, if I'm working on a project and we're going to get First Gas in, you know, 2023 – And I'm looking for a process engineer. I can be uber picky. I can interview 43 candidates. (laughs) I can waste the recruiter's time. Uh, And so what we did is we said we only want to recruit for the oil field service companies. And so in a service environment, whenever they need somebody, they need it now because they've already secured that contract with the operator to do the work. And so that's where we kind of played. And so we were... Placing a ton of wireline engineers. Um, We were uh, placing tons of HSE people, right, in order to meet specific mandates that the operator specified that they needed to meet. Um, And then uh, tons and tons of salespeople. I think, you know, the times where you would come to a headhunter would be whenever you've already taken the job, you've posted it on your website, you posted it on LinkedIn, Indeed, Monster, CareerBuilder, all the resources that everybody knows about. But you come to a headhunter when it's been 45 days and the internal recruiting group hasn't already filled it with a good candidate. And so we all know that in a good market, right, in a good oil-filled market, good salespeople are hard to find Because guess what? They've got the golden handcuffs, man. You know, I'll talk to a drilling engineer in West Texas who's making 220. And then on the very next call, I'll talk to a salesperson that made $700,000 that year because he closed a $14 million account with Pioneer on some water transfer pipe. But I believe that oil field service companies, as it specifically relates to salespeople, that's the direction that I think a lot of strong, talented, ambitious, aggressive, technical people, that's a direction for those individuals to migrate down. Because the days of buying from the guy in the boots and blue jeans, just because uh, he and I go to church together and we went to West Texas Permian High together, uh, more and more corporate organizations want technical engineers to sell those products and services. Uh, because you can actually provide a full suite of solutions as opposed to just fulfill the purchase order that the buyer wants to give you.
0: Does that make sense? Absolutely. Great advice. So the idea is maybe your geologist, your petrophysicist, your folks that are used to having a very nine to five, go to my job, work on my one small technical project, thinking outside the box, they may can make two or three times the money at a job that they hadn't previously thought that they had an aptitude for because folks are now looking for technical people and not just good sales backgrounds. Correct.
1: And, you know, I think that nowadays, even salespeople are losing the desire to make cold calls. And uh, I think a lot of the old generation, they just rely on their little little black book, right? Their Rolodex of business cards that they've been picking up since the 80s. Um, But at the end of the day, I mean, if you've got that BSME, you know, at the end of your name, um, you know, a lot of buyers, especially in, in in middle market and upper market with the majors, they lend a ton of credibility to salespeople that have those credentials. And so you don't necessarily need to have that business card in your Rolodex anymore because, heck, you could find them all on the Internet anyways, With resources like LinkedIn, Industrial Info Resources, there's even a really simple one called Don's Directory. You know, I could say, hey, show me every single completions engineer that is in this specific geo market that's with this size company. And and if I even go deeper with some databases, show me the ones that are working on projects over 5 million or 10 million or even 50 million. And so I think that accuracy of data is very important. Having the technical sale ability, right? Uh, and then really the last one is, is having the confidence to go ask for the business. And I think that's where a lot of technical engineers um, maybe don't think that they're capable. Right. But then there are those select few that have the master's degrees in petroleum engineering uh, that, that are fearless. They'll pick up the phone and call the CEO of, uh, you know, of Oxy
0: just because it was a dare, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I was fortunate in my last job to talk with a lot of investors. So I got to deal with that a lot of you know, co- having more of a lukewarm call. It wasn't totally cold but because I knew what the platform was. And so I got to go out of my comfort zone a little bit. And it, you realize it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. And the worst case scenario is that they don't answer. They just say they don't have time. I think a lot of technical people could learn a lot from that just brief experience. Yeah, I think as
1: long as you believe in the product that you're selling or the service that you're selling, right? I mean, I know there's a heck of a lot of products out there that I couldn't make a thousand cold calls a week for uh, because if I'm not passionate about the product and the solution that it provides in the marketplace, then that's not going to carry through in that sales pitch, right? And so um, that's kind of my two cents. And so, you know, you asked me earlier, you know what are some of the careers that uh, maybe displaced oilfield professionals could potentially pursue? Um, there may not be sales jobs in oil and gas right now, right? Because if if the buyers aren't wanting to buy, you know, frac and flowback services and pressure pumping services and wireline services, there's no one to sell it to. But but I'll tell you, there's a ton of industries out there that would love to hire you as an entry level salesperson. and and pay you predominantly on commission. Maybe there's a low base salary. Maybe it's a draw for the first six months or three months or something like that. But one of the things that I would encourage a lot of the displaced six-figure earners in the oil field is guess what? You can go into an industry that you know nothing about. And let's just say it's um, life insurance or the wealth management industry, right? Investment management. And you may say, heck, I don't know anything about investments right? I just put it in my Fidelity account. I put it as risk tolerance, moderate, and I see it go up and occasionally I see it go down. Well, guess what? If I become a financial advisor at an Edward Jones or a place like that, they give you the training. What they can't give you is what you already have. All of the contacts of people that have been making six figures for the last 15 years of their career who have 700,000, maybe a million, maybe $2 million in investable assets to where you walk into a meeting with the person who was your ops manager at ABC Oil and Gas, right? And now you've got a Fortune 500 brand behind you providing financial advice and you're saying, hey, look, this is why you need to invest your assets with me and you've got the Rolodex of the people that have nest eggs, and guess what? They're probably working with somebody who doesn't know their 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 business, the oil and gas business, doesn't understand their risk tolerance, right? Because it's a financial professional. It wasn't somebody that understands. Hey, I need to have six months of cash reserves. And so even though my financial advisor wants me to put this into a, you know, uh, a, a fixed return. Uh, bond, that's literally not possible because, Hey, when is oil going to take another hit, right? You can have sophisticated financial conversations with those people because you were in their shoes. And so I would encourage a lot of displaced oil and gas professionals to look at selling life insurance for, you know, Northwestern Mutual, New York Life, Mutual of Omaha, right? Selling investments for Edward Jones Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch. These are all big brands that we know about. And we say, man, am I really qualified to do that? Well, you're qualified to go get your ass a 50K salary. But if you want to make 150 like you were making before, you better bring some assets
0: into the firm to manage. Previously, you had a lot of technical knowledge that you could leverage. Now it may be those people around you with the similar technical knowledge. That's the asset moving forward. It just kind of points to the fact that LinkedIn is key in having your network really trust you and understand what you're doing and have them at your disposal is important.
1: Absolutely.
0: And, and, you know,
1: if they trust you, right, as a completions engineer and you showed up on time and did great work, we all know that those characteristics translate to any industry, whether you go become an attorney, right? You go back to law school, whether you become a wealth advisor, whether you become a software developer, we know that a players will always be a players no matter what they do and what they attempt in life.
0: Yeah, yeah, no problem. So, you know, with obviously a lot of crazy stuff happening in the world, um, people are staying at home. A lot of people in the oil and gas space were full-time workers. And I'm suspecting a lot of people that were contractors for, especially for operators, could be impacted by everything that's happening. And with a lot of the world going towards gig economy and kind of on-demand workforce, do you see any changes or any trends that may impact oil and gas work?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, um, you know, now that, you know, we've had employees working from home for the last nine, 10 weeks, we've seen the productivity is still up, right? Whether they're engineers or other technical professionals. Um, and so what I think is going to happen is, is more employers are going to be open to the idea of allowing full-time W-2 employees to work from home. And what's going to happen is, is individuals who may be employed at this operator at 170 may take this job at 150 because now they can work from home five days a week. right? Uh, And so I think that we might actually see somewhat of a mild downtick in salaries for um, certain professions and bands and things of that nature, just because, you know, number one, You know, oil and gas companies want to maximize profitability because we don't know when this is ever going to happen again. Um, And number two, I think that above the 100,000 mark, um, especially in two income families, um, making 120 or 180 or even 220, it's marginally affects the quality of life for those individuals. And so if they can, you know, wake up at 630, work out, eat breakfast with the kids And then jump on the work laptop at 8 a.m., they're going to do that so they don't have to sit in traffic for 50 minutes driving downtown.
0: Wow. I had never considered that that would be a bargaining chip moving forward and kind of lower the cost. And if you think about it, too, I know living in Dallas, I spend, you know, six dollars a day just in tolls. Uh, I don't even know what my gas bill is, but, you know, it's probably like ten dollars a day just to commute. It's like, man, if you really start adding up all these little things, not only the time to commute, but then the stress, it may be actually the same value to take less money net all of your expenses. I mean, especially if you have kids, there's so many families right now that
1: are finally having an opportunity to spend time with their kids in the home and obviously doing homeschooling and and, and Zoom meetings with uh, the little ones and they're remembering the reason why they go to work, right? And so I think that more um, individuals will have a desire to work from home or have flex schedules and have flex hours, um, especially if they're going to still be productive for you know their company. And I think that most companies are seeing that that's certainly an option right now.
0: And I'm so glad I asked that question because it was kind of an aha moment for me. So when you look at the future in oil and gas My first thought from a lot of these interviews I've had is that your engineers are going to become more programmer focused. They're going to be a lot more statistically driven. As before, it was probably relying on their experience. Now it's going to be more of you're just a software expert. When you think of some of these traditional oil and gas jobs in the past, can you kind of think of a natural path that they may be going in the future? And I know this is obviously we're using your crystal ball a lot. and I'll give you a couple examples. So I wanted test a few of these out and see what you thought. So the first one would be like a landman in oil and gas.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say that I'm probably not going to be able to provide a ton of insight, you know, on a lot of these for the simple fact that I don't go to work for an oil and gas company every day. Um, You know, a lot of the searches that we did were, you know, hey, look, this is a revenue generator for my company. Um, I can't find anybody. Can you go poach somebody from the company across the street? And so um, whenever it comes to, you know, where individuals can migrate into other areas by leveraging their skill sets, I would say I don't have a ton of experience on that for the simple fact that they don't need to pay me $50,000 for someone if they're going to have to train them from scratch on the industry. And so really it's just getting somebody that does that job at the company across the street. And so the value add that I can create and it will apply to every single one of those, whether it's landman, process engineer, completion engineer, facilities engineer, ops engineer, drilling, whatever, is go into an environment where you get paid on what you produce. Become a revenue producer. I'm telling you guys in a whether it's a, a high market, whether it's a down market, um, whether there's a global pandemic, if you generate revenue for the company, Your job is extremely valuable, and um, and your compensation is variable based on how important you are to the organization. And so, you know, I look at my recruiting firm. You know, we've got chemical engineers that work for us. We had a gentleman for in his last year with us, he made two hundred ninety-seven thousand dollars. But it was because he could leverage his technical expertise in order to bond and communicate with other technical engineers and uh, actually provide insight that was value add to help them navigate whether or not they should go to XYZ company or BCD company or or CDC company. That individual chose uh, recruiting as an industry. I think there's other industries like I mentioned earlier, the insurance business, the wealth management industry, obviously legal services and things of that nature. Um, You know, I've seen friends um, that have migrated into the tech space, right? Whether it be you know, industrial IoT, you know, things of that nature or fintech. I know is very, very strong right now. You said you work for a fintech startup, but, but at the end of the day, right, if I'm a landman, my, I better go into sales where I'm getting paid on what I produce. And again, you already know you have a fearlessness of approaching a potential buyer or potential seller, right? Um, And it it certainly translates to uh, potential buyers as well.
0: Now, thanks for walking me through that. And I think your point about being really specific about the jobs, it's more like generally there, these are some things you could look for when you're thinking of characteristics that hiring managers are constantly asking for in their employees. What are three things that you could tell people, Hey, figure out where you can fix these things or show these characteristics in yourself and hiring managers will almost always want that.
1: Yeah. So number one, I think is confidence and it's a fine line, right? Between confidence and arrogance. Um, but I think number one is confidence. Um, you know, number two would probably be accuracy, right? Especially as engineers, because, you know, I know there's a, quite a few people who maybe English as a second language, right? And, and, um, you know, written communications and sometimes even verbal communications can be somewhat of a challenge. Um, I don't necessarily think that it, it, it uh, affects their ability to run process simulations, but um, but, you know, accuracy, you know, excellence, verbal communications, written communication skills. Um, and you know, it's funny that I'll say this one's number three because number one was confidence, but I think number three is humility, right? And and you recognizing, you know, the individuals that, that afforded you the opportunity to gain that confidence, highlight that, that grit that work ethic, show that humility to say, the reason why I'm good is because I had to walk through all this. And I think that's really what's going to separate a lot of the people who maybe have the same technical degree from the same school is it's those people that have the confidence, the humility, the grit, the work ethic, the competitive spirit, Um, the ability to wear many hats, I think is something that employers are really looking for right now. And so you've, you've got experience in drilling and completions and reservoir engineering. That's definitely something that you need to highlight on your resume uh, because I think at least some of the small to mid size operators may want to leverage that expertise and have you wear a couple of hats.
0: That's such an interesting point. I want to stick on that for a second. The uh, Are you going to be a super wide pool of water that's shallow or a very narrow pool that's deep? And I, I think in the past, it, at least whenever I started, it was always – oh, become a certain type of engineer, facility engineer, reservoir engineer, whatever it is, and then become a super expert in that and go super deep. But I think what you're seeing, and that's a great point, is that if you have a little bit more of a varied skill set, a wider tool belt, then you can maybe work at a smaller company and do multiple jobs and be more valuable. That's a really good point. And I think you hit the nail on the head in a comment
1: earlier on why maybe the super technical experience is not as valuable is because with technology now, we have access to so much data to where we don't even really need to make gut feel decisions anymore. We can leverage the data to say, Hey, how did that well perform under these same conditions at this time last year, you know, X, Y, Z, and we can actually pull data instead of go say, well, Jim Bob, how did, (laughs) you know, how was it back in 83 whenever you were over here? Right. And so I think that the market is, is, kind of migrating into more of a data-driven decision-making and, and, and planning and and, um, and even discovery uh, process today. And so, you know, where can those individuals, whether they're petroleum engineers um, or mechanical engineers, right? Data science is a massively growing vertical that not only applies to oil and gas, um, but across all industries, right? You know, leveraging data in order to give insights to decision makers um to make very accurate and actionable decisions right and so uh, we know big data right that's a phrase that's very hot right now we obviously know of you know ai and machine learning and things of that nature um but uh, but again those are all massively growing areas that uh, strong technical backgrounds where with individuals that have the ability to accrue knowledge very quickly that are meticulous and accurate those uh, those skills will translate very well into those work.
0: Great advice. Let's let's kind of move over to the more general side. Have you had any major aha moments since March of twenty twenty? And we may have already touched on it with just the re- working remotely.
1: Yeah. So mine may come off um, poorly. My aha moment was um, I just wanted to have fun, man. You know, why the hell do we work so much? You know. Um, you know, for, I've been very fortunate and blessed in my career to where I've, I've 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 been afforded the opportunity to have some financial freedom, and even though the the Dow took you know a thirty eight percent hit over a one week period in March, and fortunately it's since recovered back to only being down about twenty two percent, but I really started to spend money on things that I, I was being a little bit more frugal about. Right, so if you want a Peloton. Right. If you want, you know, the, the new iPad, the new Apple Watch, you know, whatever it is, why the heck do we go to work every single day and bust our butt and, and make money if we can't actually enjoy our surroundings and, and, and consume that money in order to live our best life? And so that was my aha moment. Right. And, and um, now we've all got a little bit more time to where we can go outside and, and, and literally, you know, smell the roses Right. Um, and uh, so I would encourage, you know, your listeners to maybe not be so focused on trying to retire, you know, in their early 50s or, or, or mid 50s, but go out and enjoy it right now. And if you have to tack on five more years in the back end, then, hey, you guys are learning to d- diversify your skill sets and to migrate to an industry where you're going to be more satisfied, where you don't want to retire when you're 55, because maybe you're providing more of a value add to the person that's buying your product or service than just taking fossil fuels and creating petrochemicals.
0: Yeah, very interesting points. I mean, I think the amount of people I've seen walking around my neighborhood is 5 or 10x any, you know, January 2020, for instance. So no doubt, just even going outside has been a big aha moment for me that Hey, there's all this, yep. there's all this space out here that's completely underutilized.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. You know that we we look whenever whenever we're house shopping and we look at the price per square foot, well the price per square foot out there is zero, man. Go consider <laughs> it. Go consider it. And 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 really maximize the friendships with you with your friends and your family and your neighbors and and uh, at the end of the day money it comes and goes, right? And and um, you know I think all of your listeners right we've all you know been very financially rewarded hopefully you know in this industry um you know at least for the last few years some for the last 15 20 years but now we need to go out there pay it forward treat people right live our best life bring happiness into the lives of others and um and maybe that means we can't have that brand new mercedes sl63 but uh, but that's not what life's about man yeah it's about what did we talk about? Right. The humility, the confidence and the accuracy.
0: No, I think that's a great point. I think that's kind of the end of that talk. <laughs> let's talk about uh, let's kind of move back into taking all of this, taking all we've talked about and boil it down to if you were a petrotechnical expert and you were laid off today. Let's say geologist, geophysicist, petrophysicist, for example, what would you what would be the first thing you would do?
1: Well, I would say that's probably not a good question for me because I don't have a clear answer for that. But, uh, you know, I think the first thing that I would do is take a look at all of my assets, right? You want to take a look at which ones are liquid, which ones are captive. You want to really have a very clear and accurate snapshot of the equity in your home um, and potentially look at every single expense that you have that's a... Uh, Fixed or even variable expense that goes out on a monthly basis, and so, you know, I think I've spoke with a lot of folks back in 2015 and 2016 that just thought that it was going to come back in four, five, six months, and over a 15 month period of unemployment, they literally burned through their entire life savings because their lifestyle didn't change, and um, and so I think that's probably the first thing that I would do is take a look at, you know, all of my assets and all of my expenses. And made sure that I managed that
0: delta um, very, very efficiently, at least for the next 12 months. Great practical advice. And really for anyone outside of petrotechnical, just really practical advice. I appreciate that. So we're going to kind of ask two questions here. The first one is specific to job searching or careers. Do you have any books, podcasts, online resources that you'd recommend to someone to improve either just their career in general or their outlook on their career?
1: Yeah, so there was one book that actually helped me as an entrepreneur tremendously, and uh, doesn't necessarily apply to engineers or technical professionals. Um, but there was a book called Traction, written by Gino Wickman, that um, you know helped early career or, or even middle, middle career entrepreneurs um, create clarity in their business. It gave them um, a mission, vision, and values, and, and helped provide the framework to help those entrepreneurs scale. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of books out there, you know, about finding your why and things of that nature where I think it could be um, maybe the consumer's equivalent, right? Um, but for me, I know that was critically important to helping us um, eliminate the white noise that life throws at you to say, hey, these are the things that I do very well. I'm going to choose something and I'm going to jump all in and I'm going to be great about it. I'm going to be great at it because at the end of the day, there are so many different uh, media platforms that are all pulling for our attention, whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, you know, YouTube, whatever it is. I think eliminating a lot of that white noise, finding your why and developing a strategy in order to execute that very efficiently, I think that's very, very important.
0: Just kind of a little bit more unrelated. We've talked a lot about jobs and careers, but are there just any books, podcasts, resources that you really enjoyed? I mean, maybe this is kind of from your time during the past couple of months, just for, for enjoyment.
1: Yeah. So uh, for me personally, no. You know, my president of my company uh, is the one that is the consumer of podcasts and the consumer of books. I would say that I'm way too ADD to sit down for an extended period of time. Um, even though I do it all the time and that's why I'm overweight, right? But usually it involves uh, perusing through Instagram or perusing through LinkedIn or something like that. But uh, that would be a word of encouragement is to uh, go out and engage on social media platforms. And one of the best ways to get your name out there to network is not necessarily to pull at that lever and say, give me a job, give me a job, give me a job. but maybe you could do you, you could motivate, and inspire other people and their content that they publish. And, uh, and it creates a very favorable stigma associated with your brand and your face on social media platforms to where they say, Hey, that guy reads styles and that guy's a builder of people. Right. And maybe they know that before they even click on your LinkedIn profile to figure out what, what it is that you do. And so create a strong brand of, uh, of, of motivating, inspiring, supporting each other. I think that's one thing that we can all do to help us be better servants in our
0: community. I appreciate that advice. I also like that this mimics what you do on LinkedIn. Your, your stories are often funny or they're insightful and they're not ultra serious, but I know there's always a nugget of value there. And so I like that, you know, just like your content, you're seeking out other people that appreciate that content.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, I've been fortunate to where when when the market was going well, right, and people were hiring like left and right, um, you know, we were getting an inbound call from a potential hiring manager uh, once a week. Hey, Jeremy, can you find process engineers? Can you find me a CFO? Can you find a, a VP of technology? And it wasn't because I was drip marketing to them saying, I'm a recruiter, I'm a recruiter, I'm a recruiter. It was because They developed a relationship with my persona on LinkedIn. I never asked for business. I gave real, honest, true, transparent stories of things that happened in my day-to-day life. And they developed an element of trust uh, with somebody that they thought that they knew personally. When it was ready to buy they raised their hand and say, hey, Jeremy, can you help me out? And I was there to answer the call. You know, I think that's one thing that's kind of a lost characteristic nowadays is accessibility and responsiveness. And, um, you know, if if anybody does want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, I reply within 24 hours, 100% of the time, Uh, even if it's a, hey, uh, you know, we don't really have anything for you. And so I, I do believe in responsiveness, transparency, not stringing people along, Right. If, if there's a candidate that's looking for a job and I know that I absolutely don't have any clients that would be motivated to pay a recruiting fee on that individual, I'll be honest and transparent about it. But I won't ghost you. You know, after my divorce, I was on dating apps for three months. I know how it feels to get ghosted. It's no fun.
0: Yeah, that, that definitely has trickled into the business world. I, we've got a couple left. I want to respect your time and thank you so much for your candor on the questions. This one relates to mentorship. Who do you personally look to for mentorship and how did you find those individuals?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So for me personally, uh, I was a very cocky and arrogant 30 year old entrepreneur. I, I, you know, I thought I was the smartest person in the room. Um, I thought I was God's greatest gift to recruitment. And, um, you know, that only got me so far in business. And then when I joined a group called Vistage International back in I would say 2015 I think it was maybe maybe 2014. Um, And I surrounded myself in a room with other executives that had more tenure or maybe they had bigger companies than me. Um, That was a very humbling experience for me and so I was in Vistage for three years and then I migrated away from Vistage and joined the entrepreneurs organization which uh, shortened as EO, and I'm now, I'm now on the board of that nonprofit here in Houston. And, um, you know, what it is, is it's a global fraternity of over 14,000 entrepreneurs. We've got about 180 here in Houston. And uh, I would say those guys are my mentors. You know, there are people that I mentor in EO. But when you surround yourself with individuals who don't really need anything from you, they're all successful in their own right. They're not there to ask you for business. They're not there to flex their their, their muscles or, or peacock around in their Ferraris and their Rolls Royces. They're there genuinely to share learning and social experience with other like-minded entrepreneurs that want to better themselves. I would say those are the mentors that, that, that create a lot of value for me. And so I would encourage your audience to take a look at other arenas where maybe uh, commerce is not the focal point of it, right? Maybe it's experience sharing or learning, or it could even be a religious institution. Um, but when when the person that other other side of the table doesn't need your business, that's a real organic friendship and mentorship, right there.
0: Great advice, and I definitely when I was working at my startup, I love that camaraderie you have when you work with other either contractors or other third party vendors that are also entrepreneurs and whether or not you work together or not, you always have that just, Hey, I do this too. I'm an entrepreneur also, you know, I grind too. It's just kind of a mutual respect thing. That's really cool. Absolutely. So what, what motivates you to keep grinding? I know you create a lot of content. You've got your business, you're responding to every single LinkedIn message, whether it really is helpful to you or not, like what gets you up in the morning to keep doing that? Like, why do you make yourself so accessible?
1: Yeah. So, uh, so my number one love language is words of affirmation. Um, and, uh, you find these things out whenever you're going to go into marriage counseling, just so you know. So I hope you never have to do it, but, um, you know, I don't want anyone to ever say, Hey, that guy didn't help me out or that guy's no good at his job. Um, and I want people to know that I'm an expert at my craft and that I do it honestly and with integrity. Um, but, uh, but the reason why I grind man is, is the 20 families that are, that our company supports, right. You know, I, I, when things were going really, really well, um, and everybody was hiring, right. Whether it's a law firm or a wealth management firm and oil field, ser- oil field service company, industrial technology company, um, those people grinded in order to make me rich, you know, and, um. And, and what I did is what I, I gave them an opportunity I gave them training um, I showed them respect I gave them recognition but now the the way that I can repay that is by returning a little bit of that of, of that income that they helped generate for me man you know and, and just because you're used I'll use your audience as an example just because you're used to making, a year, right? It's a nice round number. Doesn't mean that you need to make $150,000 a year every single year going forward, right? For whatever reason, the American way has taught us that you can never go back and you need to be greedy and you need to be selfish. You need to scratch and claw to climb the corporate ladder. But if you can find true satisfaction in um, working in a nonprofit or working in an industry that has a mission, that, that actually um, allows you to sleep better at night or, or, or allows you to to get excited about you know going back to work on a sunday right you know whenever whenever we're all uh, laying everything out and getting it all prepared Sunday evening right if you can find something that helps you do that and maybe the salary is 75, 80, I would encourage you know those people to pursue that grind as opposed to the grind um, that doesn't offer any type of self-fulfillment.
0: I think that's going to echo with a lot of people. The, I did the soul searching in 2016 when I joined the startup life and, and have definitely been down that path. And I wish that there was an easy answer to this question. And I think that what you're saying is that people make it more complicated. They're obviously influenced by the way that we're brought up, the culture of, the, of America and a bunch of other th- factors that they may not even know are happening. And so I love the idea that you're telling them, hey, look, it's okay to try something new. It's okay to make a little less money. It's okay to do these different things that are a little counterintuitive at first and probably not the first thing that they thought they would be doing.
1: Bet on yourself, though, guys. You know, that's what I did back in in 2010 when I started my business. I bet on myself. And um, there are a variety of different avenues that you can go down, whether it's sales, um, whether it's producing in another environment where it's a technical, service being provided like financial advice or legal advice Um, but always bet on yourself you'd you'd be happy uh, or i bet you'd be surprised to look at the return on that investment whenever you actually invest in yourself
0: well i think that's great advice let's kind of wrap things up how can people find you and do you have a request for the audience personally
1: so no request, you know, I, I definitely want to thank you for having me on. I think this was uh this was a lot of fun getting to know you and uh, hopefully your audience sees a little bit of value in some of the commentary that I provided. Uh, if you guys have any follow-up questions, you know, feel free to shoot me a, a LinkedIn message. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. The name is Jeremy Jensen. That's J-E-N-S-O-N. And the name of my company is Encore Search Partners. So track me down on LinkedIn Shoot me a, uh, a message and a follow request, and I'll be happy to get in touch with you as soon as I see the message.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jeremy. I know that all the information will be in the description for the podcast, and I just can't thank you enough for your candor and just really shooting it straight with us. And not only that, I, I learned a lot of new things having done so many interviews now, and I Definitely got that different sense of the new ideas, some new inspirations and things I just hadn't thought about or heard from anyone else. So I really appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. There are two ways you can help with the podcast. You can like it. You can give it a five-star review in iTunes, obviously subscribe for new episodes and thanks. We'll catch you next time.